Turnkey provider, in my definition, is an, an organization who basically has three main components to their business. They find properties in a market that is a well-performing market to begin with and buy these and renovate them with their own contractor slash renovation team. Then the middle component or second component of that company is the marketing. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. This is Jason Muth here along with attorney, broker, Rory Gill from Next Home Tile Town Real Estate, Urban Village Legal in Boston. Hey, Rory. Hey, Jason. It's good to be here. Yeah, we have an excellent guest today. Uh, we're going to be speaking to a actual PhD who is also a veteran who has flown for a couple decades in multiple air forces. Did I get that right, Axel? Yeah, totally. Very good. <laughs> yeah. We are speaking with Axel Meyer-Hofer. How close was I? Very close, yeah. Very mm. close. Okay, you know, I did take German until 10th grade, and I did not want to say that to you beforehand because now you're going to hold that against me and try to mm. say some words to me. Uh, that we're I even now. I was know. two minutes late, so, you know, we're even now. <laughs> <laughs> we're, uh, we're trying something different. I'm outside today in the beautiful sun porch, so hopefully we won't have too much background noise, but the weather was just too nice not to. So I know, actually, you're in sunnier territory than we are. Massachusetts gets, you know, not as much sun as places out west. So where are you today? And tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I'm at uh, our home office in the San Diego area. We got 295 days and we have one of those today. So yeah, it's pretty good. 295. I think that's a couple hundred more than we normally get, right? Or, <laughs> yeah. That's why it's happening right now. We have a beautiful day. We have to be outside. We can't let it go to waste. Yeah, absolutely. So Axel is the founder of Ideal Wealth Grower. And we have a lot of great things to talk about today with Axel, including getting over analysis paralysis um, and taking the first step toward passive income and reaching your time freedom point, how to earn your first turnkey property and why residential real estate investing is a good plan for your money. I think those are things that a lot of our listeners are searching for this information for from us, from other podcasts. There's a lot of it out there on the internet. I think that you know we feel more confident ourselves with our investment strategy. The more of these stories that we hear, hearing from an expert like yourself, Axel, I think is going to be really beneficial to both us and other people who are real estate investors and looking to capture their time back, you know, because time is much more precious than money, in my opinion. So Axel, we'd love to hear about your background and kind of how you found your way into uh, into the work that you're doing, you know, helping people find their time back and, and their freedom through real estate. Yeah. So you mentioned the work in the Air Force when I got out of school. I originally wanted to fly for the airlines, but uh, they didn't hire at the time. And Several people say, well, if you're that desperate to fly, why don't you join the military? And so I joined the Air Force and, and got uh, pilot training and all that kind of stuff and ultimately got really interested in the advancement of technology because, and I don't know how many people know this, when you work in the Air Force, regardless whether it's the U.S. Air Force or the German Air Force in this case, is you're not just having the job to train to fly the plane but you typically also have an additional specialization. And so my additional specialization was in electronic warfare. 
And that included in a nutshell how and what systems can be used to make somebody in a plane aware that there's a threat from the ground or from other planes trying to kind of shoot you down. And I was fascinated by that and I wanted to learn more about it and actually asked, you know, how can I get more in depth, especially since the plane I was first introduced to learning to fly was literally just fresh out of the factory. And they said, well, if you want to do more of that kind of stuff, you need to get into flight test. And so I kind of still in uniform work basically for the company that built the plane. And most of those electronic warfare components came from the United States. So which meant if you wanted to learn how to actually, what's in them, how do they work, what did the engineers think, and then integrate them in the plane, you had to go there. So I, together with my wife and my daughter, we came to the US quite a few times, every time about like three to five weeks at a time to, to get training and introduction from these companies. And at some point, my wife said, you know, it would be nice if we could stay a little longer at a time and not just these relatively short uh, sprints. And I looked into it and was quite surprised to see that the United States Air Force and the German Air Force had an exchange program for decades and decades. I applied, long story about that, that I spare you, and got actually accepted and then came over to become the assistant director of operations for US Air Force Fighter Wing and um, flew F-111s. And one thing in this whole why I'm telling the story about the military is mainly because anybody who meets somebody at the officer or staff officer level that I was at, you're basically moving around every two or three years, which also means, especially when you get to a certain rank level, you are not the prime person to get base housing. So you typically have to look around in the community, okay, what are the housing options? Sometimes bases have you know, some properties outside of the base where you can stay. Sometimes they say you should find something to rent and sometimes it just makes more sense to uh, find something to buy. So without really consciously thinking about it, a little bit of an introduction on how is real estate related to where you are and what you can do came from that. And then um, in 2001, I retired from the Air Force because you get to a point where your body is just not able to handle it anymore and um, became an executive in a software company in Santa Barbara. And in 2005, basically started uh, my own business. What I found is, what can I do when I'm a business owner to build something so that I have, you know, for lack of a better term, some retirement plan? Now, keep in mind, 2005 was only two or three years re removed from the dot-com burst, bubble burst in the stock market. So for me, that was like, mm, don't want to really touch that. And I remembered the experience I just explained about the uh, real estate kind of like dabbling, so to speak, in the military and started thinking, okay, I need to find out how this works because I really didn't feel I knew enough about it. And so I, you know, I don't want to say I bought cassette tapes, but almost <laughs> you know, and started learning about it and then um found a creative way people called me completely crazy we were renting in santa barbara which people understand because it it was even at the time already super expensive and i thought well there must be a way that we can get into buying a house and um i basically the only way i could figure out at the time was using an adjustable rate mortgage seven one which everybody said you're crazy was mm -hmm. the best deal i've ever done financially <laughs> 
<laughs> and so, yeah, and then kept talking about it. And as I got involved in more deals, more investments and so forth and so forth, people started saying, you know, uh, one of these people who really dig into a particular topic knowingly limiting kind of like almost on rails the niche that you want to be in and so that niche like you said jason is basically residential real estate investing anything up to fourplex basically unless it's a syndication that can happen i really dug into that and told people stories about the 1031 exchanges and all that kind of stuff and ultimately people said you know i'm sure there are plenty of other people out there who would like to have access to this information and not having to go through those 12 to 15 years that you went through. And I thought, okay, well, let's see. And I started a website and it kind of started growing from there. Thank you for your service first and foremost, but also for that, you know, that entire transitionary period you had from being, from coming, being in the service to becoming an expert in real estate investing. Were you largely self-driven or were there external forces or other people kind of pushing you along the way? Well, the thing that I thought was interesting, and, and there are a few little, you know, you could call them kinship type of things. And I'm still to this day amazed how we sometimes get influenced by stuff. So one of the things that happened, like I mentioned, the Santa Barbara area was, okay, real estate, and how do we do this creative financing and stuff like that? But I wonder who has or is doing something like that already. And I'm like, what names do I know? And for some reason, my brain said something about, well, there are probably other quote-unquote immigrants who you went through a similar, maybe not military, but similar. And the name, because at the time it was big in the news, was the Terminator, okay. Mr. Schwarzenegger okay. himself, right? And it made that kinship connection, okay, Austrian-German, close enough, right? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> And I looked into it, and I found out why the guy made tons and tons of money in, in movies and put most of it in real estate. He was, at the time, one of the largest residential real estate investors in the state of California. And I'm like, okay, um, let me look into this a little more. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, and then, you know, if I catch the bug for something, then I'm trying to learn as much as I can and, you know, did courses and programs and learn more about it. And that's kind of like what triggered it. <laughs> okay. This has to be the first time that we've had a guest on who's been influenced that much by Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I think it says a lot about the work. I mean, Schwarzenegger's great, obviously, <laughs> with, uh, you know, being such a great movie star. And yeah. you know, he's spoken up a lot for, for human rights along the way. Yeah, um, and sustainability big time. I mean, I really appreciate him sticking to his beliefs and principles regardless of political affiliation so because i mean i'm sure he's not very popular in the republican party as a strong advocate for sustainability but he's never wavered on that and i really i still to this day admire that conviction yeah i was asking in large part you know your influences as you get started because you know a lot of the work you do now is taking those people who have an interest in real estate and who are really afraid to take that first plunge and get into the space so hearing about you know how you made that pivot is just important for me to understand you know what it is you in turn do for do for your clients and everybody that you're working with you know before I hop into specific questions with it when you're working with somebody who's interested in the space um, and you want to try to encourage them to get involved how do you approach that that person and how do you start working with them to give them the are you trying to give them the confidence to go ahead or are you trying to give them the knowledge to go ahead um, or the techniques? What's the primary driver to get into going from a, somebody on the sidelines to somebody who's a real estate investor? We'll be right back. 
every other real estate rental property deal analysis spreadsheet is wrong. The only spreadsheet that correctly analyzes your real estate deals taking into account reserves, true cash flow, including depreciation, and your true net equity on a property is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet from the Real Estate Financial Planner. Download a free copy today and finally start analyzing your rental properties correctly. Go to refp.info forward slash free to download it today. Well, what I'm finding, well, for one, finding people or getting in touch with people depends a little bit on how outreach. So I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of people who listen to us today will potentially be intrigued to say, hey, maybe I, I want to tap into this and learn more. So any kind of outreach and talking about the topic. The other area, a great place uh, that I found from pretty early on is Bigger Pockets. Mm-hmm. And because of the fact that the forums on Bigger Pockets give people the opportunity to ask questions, and like I mentioned, this is kind of how the story about my getting here is connected, is as somebody who has always been educating others in how to learn to fly, how to become an electronic warfare expert, how to do real estate. For me, I I'm more in, see myself more and always did in the role of when somebody posts a question in the forums to give my um, view and my advice to extend possible and how I would go about and answer that question in those forums. And and I have to say a lot of people ultimately, when I ended my my answer or my suggestion with, if you want to talk more about it, just shoot me an email or get in touch. A lot of people did that which I attest to, okay, maybe it resonated in some way. The point, on the other hand, is how to get people involved is there is, in my experience now over the last few years, this media-driven misconception that you need to live, luckily, in an area that supports reasonable numbers in the context of real estate, where you can say, okay, I can still find a property somewhere between a hundred and 200000 I can still get into a new build project below three hundred or four hundred thousand, especially when you look at the median price development that we have all seen in the last few years. And when you look at the country as as a whole, include I'm including parts of Canada. So if you go like West Coast, including Vancouver or East Coast, including Toronto, there are lots of areas where any of those numbers sound comical. I mean, Boston obviously <laughs> is one of them too. Right. So when I then respond or talk about, well, if you live somewhere where you either have to live because that's your passion or your job or your family or whatever keeps you there, or like in my case, I live here because I want to live here and have these 295 days of sunshine. But it also means here we're not at 406,000, like the medium for the country, but at about 760 or so for median. So when you look at this from an investment lens and you say, okay, if I typically do a down payment, 20%, my money, 80% from the bank, and you have 760 as as the number, you have to run around with 160,000 plus cash. Well, how many people do you know that do that, right? So that part to say, okay, I want to do it. I think it's a good thing. And I mean, we have the best accelerator. I don't know how you guys think about it, but when bonds crash, stocks crash, <laughs> uh, cryptos crash, everything crashes. I would say, we are the last man standing, right? Like could be an Arnold Post. <laughs> so because we are the only area that's still growing, people still make good cash flow, still have good investments, don't have to worry about value depression or anything like that. 
but the point is more my message is regardless where you live and especially if you live somewhere in those higher priced areas does not mean you cannot invest in real estate for good performance and this whole journey to the time freedom point is investing in well-performing properties to shorten the time or the journey to your time freedom point. And that obviously doesn't work in Boston or in San Diego or Santa Barbara, unless you have an unbelievable job that gives you 50 grand a, a, a year in free money or something like that. The way I've seen it in, in those expensive markets, and by the way, I don't blame you for not wanting to leave San Diego. I mean, like I've been out, it's such a beautiful, beautiful area, but it's expensive. You know, it's expensive here in the Northeast as well. As expensive as it is though, you know, I have a little bit of a different mindset toward it. I mean, the numbers are bigger, but it means that the leverage works better. And I feel as though as if you make the right decisions and you put a a bigger percentage into a deal, that's a big, you know, a big property value, a million dollars or something like that. You know, when a million dollars goes up by 25%, that's a quarter million right there. You know, when $300,000 goes up by 25%, you know, that's $70,000 right there. Did I do that math right? Three, no, uh, 75,000. It's just the numbers are bigger, like in the early. So, so if you make the right decisions and make the right bets, you know, I think that the numbers could accelerate a lot more quickly in some of the more expensive markets. But to your point, it is tough to get in. It just is. Yeah, I mean, that's why. I agree. But the thing about it is um, one thing percentages in this context leads to nominal results, right? And what I'm finding is, you're totally right. If you say, okay, if, if I can get a million dollar property and, and had to put 200,000 down, the nominal result, as you just described, is higher. The point that I'm finding in most of our clients' life um, reality is they don't have $200,000. And it looks like an insurmountable mountain to climb to ever get to the amount of money needed to do the first step. So, what I'm trying to get closer to them is to say, okay, well, if I can't do the 200,000, but over time, I can do 10 times 20 or 10 times 30,000, right? Which would mean, okay, I can get $150,000 property pretty much right now because I have 30,000 or I can get to 30,000 rather quickly. And then I can make a plan who, how I get to 30,000, another 30,000, in the next 15 to 18 months and get my second property. And then get my, and obviously if you do this for a while, then you also gain equity in the properties you did. You can do HELOCs and all kinds of other creative ways. But the point is, and I put this in kind of my application, if you want to call it that, this analysis paralysis component is to some extent informed by, well, if I look around what the properties are in my area, and let's just say, Jason, they are a million dollars, then if I look at what I need to do to satisfy the bank, I need to come around with about 200,000. I don't have that, so I'm out. And what I'm saying, no, you're not out. You can live in Boston because that's where your job is. And you can invest, for example, in Ohio, or you can invest in Alabama, or you can invest in other places across the country. But the trick then becomes is how do you build the trust? Because when you can't be there because it's too far away, I mean, most of my investments are somewhere in the middle of the country. I'm typically at least a thousand miles away, oftentimes more. Well, then it becomes a matter of how can I institute some approach that allows me to trust the people who work on my behalf and still have good performance. 
again, you know, some people get inundated with all kinds of rumors. And I feel, you know, rumors and myth is one thing. And I want to be a role model to say, well, let's look at the reality. Let's look mm -hmm. at the properties that I have bought myself, who I bought them from, how did I buy them? And I'm the living example because I, by the way, was one of those people who didn't have a $200,000 savings account either. I'm not saying, Jason, that the numbers aren't right. You're totally right. But the number of people who can start at that point is just smaller in my experience. If I understand the strategy correctly, you know, it's the idea that, you know, even if you live in a place that's incredibly expensive, there is some place, you know, I don't know how true it is these days. I've always heard the, the line that, you know, regardless of where you live, if you go for a two hour drive, you'll find some place that um, where you can afford to enter the market. But even if that's no longer true and we're looking at, you know, interstate investments for this strategy, the key core component then is building a team of people around you that can help serve the homes. Um, is that right? Or, or, or connect with somebody who already has a team. So this point, okay. I want to just respond very quick to this. If you drive two hours, you find something that you can invest in from a pure price perspective, yep. which I think is probably true, still even true today. The issue is, and I said this earlier, and I, I really hammer this all the time also with, with our clients, is finding a place that you can afford does not guarantee performance. So it's not good enough to say, okay, I live in a place where every house is a million dollars, but if I drive two and a half hours, I can find houses for 200, 220,000, something like that. Well, if that 220,000 house is almost impossible to rent for a good lease rate, it's not performing. Okay. So if we really want to get to the time freedom point and say, okay, you put out a number, 5,000, 6,000, whatever per month in passive income, that is the performance that needs to be part of it. It's not just the price for the property, but how well does it perform? So you're right, Rory, you can either create a team or you can tap into a team. And so what for the most part, what we are doing and what I'm showing and teaching and helping uh, our clients with is to invest with turnkey providers because they did exactly what you just said. They already built a team. <laughs> so when you say turnkey provider, are you saying large corporations? Award, no, a turnkey provider, in my definition, is an, an organization who basically has three main components to their business. They find properties in a market that is a well-performing market to begin with and buy these and renovate them with their own contractor slash renovation team. Then the middle component or second component of that company is the marketing and sales team that advertises those properties, uh, whether they're for cash or for financing and so forth, and basically make it available, typically outside of MLS. So you have to have a relationship to, to be aware of that. And then the third component, and this is important in my view, and this is what we are very, very focused on compared to other definitions of turnkey. The third component is the fully developed property management component. So if you think about it, the same company finds a property, renovates it, hands it over to marketing and sales, who sells it to you, me, Rory, and then also does the management of that property on our behalf. Now, obviously, why am I so adamant about it is if you know that the property 123 Main Street in Cincinnati, Ohio, that you are currently renovating, let's say Rory were the renovation team director, and Jason, you are the director of property management. Imagine what you would do to him if he does a shitty job on the renovation. 
right? So knowing that you would not like that and allow that, it's an automatic, it's more like a human nature kind of thing to know if my own organization is hurt by any kind of oversight or, or not really well done renovation on the performance end. And especially I'm in the middle. I mean, I don't know if you guys have it on your Zoom as well, but I'm sitting in the middle. If you were those two components, I would say, guys, mm -hmm. when you want me to buy this property, I want at least a one-year guarantee that Rory did a good job, so Jason has to do nothing else than collect rent, mm -hmm. right? And so obviously that dynamic is way, way underestimated. And that's basically what I'm trying, well, I've done this first myself when, like we said, you know, when I started my business, I first dug into, found all of this, did this myself for years. And then when people convinced me to do Idea Wealth Grower, now I'm offering these existing relationships and how this works to others. But it's really important to find partner organizations that have these three components. I notice that, you know, what you're talking about, everything comes down to kind of the concept of the time freedom point. Can you tell us what that means before we go too far into the conversation um, and kind of keep dropping the term? What is the time freedom point? Well, basically, the time freedom point starts out with saying, what is your current level of living expenses? And I always encourage people to say, don't just look at the net exactly what you pay for, but also include a little bit for if you like travel or if you have a hobby or some passion or so forth, add that in. Let's just say that we're 4,200 bucks a month, right? So that's then the number or the goal from today's perspective of passive income that we would need to accomplish through real estate investing so that you gain the freedom to decide what you want to do with your time. If you love your job, you might say, I keep doing it. Mm -hmm. If you feel that it's too stressful, you might say, maybe I can dial it back to half time. Or if you say, well, it's kind of worn itself out, I would love to do fill in blank of any passion, hobby, whatever you want to do. Okay, then you can do this because you have the freedom to know that the passive income is covering your life expenses. So now then it becomes a matter of how do I get there? What, you know, how far in the future on the calendar is it? And this is a very individual thing. So let me just give an example. If you say, okay, I find this property in Cincinnati that we just mentioned earlier, and that gives me $300 a month cash flow, free cash flow after everything else is paid. My turnkey provider, property management, my reserves, my mortgage insurance, property tax, $300 left at the end of the month. Now you say, okay, 4,200 is what I wanted. Well, if I want to do 4,200, I think I need something like 14 properties. Then say, okay, um, if we don't have Jason's friend with the 200,000 in the back pocket, how many years does it take to get 14 properties? This is just the beginning viewpoint, right? Assuming each property would give us $300 a month, if we were just to plainly look at this 14 properties, let's say we can get one per year, it would be 14 years. So that's then the plan. Now we look at how can we make it faster? Now, number one, nobody would basically keep the rent from property one through property 14 forever at the same amount. And you guys know this, your audience knows this, the cost typically doesn't increase significantly. Property taxes might go up a little, insurance might go up a little, your mortgage is pretty much fixed. So as you increase the rent a little bit, that is almost 100% increasing your cash flow. So two, three years in, the $300 has probably become 400 Now, not just for that one property, but for the other ones too. So what we are finding is 
when you say the starting position is 14 properties at $300 a month, you probably end up somewhere around about 10-ish, 10, 11, maybe nine. Not all of them will be 300, some may be 350, some may be 280 or so forth, but then they also keep increasing over time. But then also we have inflation, like right now we're feeling this. So the 4,200 that would cover it now in 10 years from now need to probably be 6,000. And that's basically the journey. And anything somebody can do, like I'm, for example, uh, teaching people in our community now to do what I call cash flow parking in tokenized real estate because it's super liquid, but you get cash on cash return between 75 and 10%. So most people who go in the, on this journey towards the time freedom point are not saying I need these $300 and shouldn't need these $300. They should keep accumulating so we can faster and faster buy these properties. Well, the best place to have them accumulate, in my opinion, and again, you know, heroes, last man standing, is right now if you could put your cash flow in real estate and tokenized real estate on the platforms that we um, recommend is 50 bucks per token. Right, so if you have 300 bucks coming in the first month uh, after your purchase, you have five tokens and you can do this every month and then you have your second house and it might be 10 tokens or 12 tokens or whatever. That way your cash flow is actually earning money as well from other smaller real estate investments. And over time, like I said, even though it looked like 14 years for 14 properties, it's probably more like 10 properties in eight or nine years. That's a pretty dramatic difference from the idea that we have to save up $200,000 before we can even enter the market and to start to realize those appreciations all the way down to $50. So we have a range of different investing styles and everything. And you make a pretty fairly compelling case to start the process now and not necessarily commit yourself to a strategy where you have to save up that liquid cash because by the time you do, the properties, the $200,000 goal might be even higher with inflation um, and appreciation. And um, you've missed out on years of potential growth. Um, so I do think that's a pretty compelling case um, there. Um, with the tokenized, when you work with your clients, are you working with them to to chop up that goal and to are you steering them toward tokenized real estates, toward individual investments? What do you favor with your clients these days? Well, I favor the benefit of leverage. Mm -hmm. It's basically the answer in a nutshell. The difference between a tokenized real estate investment, as I called it, cash flow parking, and the investments mm -hmm. that we actually favor to be the, the main drivers of the journey is leverage, right? If I take that, like right now, for example, we are helping our clients to get into properties in Memphis, brand new builds. I call that infill building for $160,000 a, a house, like the lot with the house, brand new build, finished this year or next year, $160,000. So you need about $32,000 in, in down payment, right? Now, when that house, and I think that was the point that you were making, Jason, when that house appreciates by 5%, which is pretty modest, I would say, right, for a brand new house. So that's basically around $7,500, but on my 38 1,000 or something like that, that's about 30% or something, maybe even a little more than 30% appreciation, like cash on cash return on, on, on my money. In tokenized real estate, everything is cash, right? So whether you buy a $50 token, if you take that same house and the platform operator buys that $160,000 house in Memphis, 
Mm-hmm. They buy it for cash. Then they take the $160,000 and break it into $50 increments and say, hey, Jason, how many of those tokens do you want? Rory, how many? Axel, how many? Or fill in the blanks. And we can all have up to 10% maximum of the tokens in the property. Um, but we pay cash and they paid cash. So that whole aspect of leverage is gone. Now, still, the property is the same kind of property. It collects the same kind of rent. We participate in the rent. We participate in the K-1, in the depreciation, all of that. But it's similar or more akin to a cash purchase without leverage versus a leverage purchase. And I mean, it's very obvious. The 5% to 30% ratio, in some cases even more, is obviously better performing and more desirable But then again, most houses cost more than 50 bucks. So it's a balancing act. And that's why I say for the actual purchase and performance of your money, you want the leverage deal. But when it comes to when I get cash flow out of it, which is basically Mm -hmm. a leftover part of the tenant's money, you want that to perform better than what any savings account in any bank would give you. And you don't want to speculate with it either. That's why I say keep it in real estate. So, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, we've seen bonds, stocks, crypto, everything crashing, yeah. real estate. We're, we're the ones still at the top of the hill because things continue going up and up and up. If you own a number of properties, you know, we're still feeling confident. Um, what's in the crystal ball? Like, is this kind of the direction where you're still advising your clients because of the volatility elsewhere? Like, do you, obviously everyone has a, prediction for where things are going. I'm not asking for you to say where interest rates are going to be or whatever, but just as a whole, you know, is there still confidence in your mind in investing in the real estate world? And do you think this will uh, allow people to weather the volatility of the other financial markets uh, pretty well? Well, the short answer would be yes. Um, A little bit more in depth, one thing that I've become very fascinated about and re- reading and educating myself more and more and more, maybe because I'm believing that I know quite a bit about real estate, but now I try to understand the macroeconomic environment that is kind of guiding. So to your point, I believe that the price side of real estate on the broader scale, if you're not looking at any kind of spe- special circumstance or particular area with particular circumstance, on the broader scale, I believe we are far, far away from filling in this massive hole on uh, lack of supply that has basically developed between 2010 and 2020. I mean, with, with the whole financial crisis, from my perspective, builders, and the banks through their regulations and stuff like that created at least a 10 million unit hole of, of units of real estate or houses and, and, and apartments and condos that are needed in the market. And that's not even taking into consideration the population growth. Right? It would be probably more like 12 million or something like that if you added that in. And even though with the boom that we have been seeing in price appreciation, there has obviously been a big trigger to build more and start new developments, it's still an enormous mountain to climb. And now when you say, okay, well, how about now? Right? Well, now we have the problem that people, and you have to keep in mind, most of these new developments are being built for owner-occupants. Mm-hmm. Now they run into the problem with the Fed increasing rates as they have been and seem to be continued to do for the rest of the year at least. 
mortgage rates are at a level that the typical owner occupant is more and more in the bind of qualifying. So there, there is most likely in my crystal ball a, a hesitation to start brand new projects this year and maybe even next year, regardless how long it takes to get the permit, just because you don't really know how many potential owner occupants would qualify at 6 and 7% mortgage interest rates, which is in a sense a good opportunity for us because any inventory that comes on the market and um, builders who had thought they had it already sold and people have to basically jump off the contracts because they can't afford it anymore. Those builders would be looking for you and me and anybody else to say, is there maybe an investor who would buy this property and then rent it out? Because I believe we are always in this balancing act. And right now with the environment that we are already in and probably going to be in for a little longer, I, I'd say about next two and a half, three years, there will be much more demand on rent and less demand on purchase, except for investors who we love tenants, especially good tenants and good deals. So long story short, I believe that we won't see the same price appreciation as we have seen in the last two or three years. But in my approach with the time freedom point and the things we discussed before, appreciation is basically the icing on the cake anyway. Right. We're buying this property for the long term to generate the cash flow, not because we are trying to sell them in five or six or seven years. So if it appreciates really rapidly, then we would be much more, I would advise my client, much more likely to get a home equity line of credit to tap into the equity and buy another property than sell the one just because it got more valuable. Because remember, cash flow performance is the aim of the game. Right. So that's that's basically um, how I see it. So price appreciation, I don't think is going to stay as high just because we're kind of getting to the to a plateau uh, demand for for rentable units, I believe, will go up. Rents have not really anywhere caught up to the price appreciation. So I believe rents themselves will continue to go up, which to some extent will result in more cash flow but you could counter argue well how does this mean more cash flow when interest rates have been going up like this and so one of the things that i'm advising our clients is because well let's say it this way i'm advising them to look for more creative in uh, financing options like interest only or uh, adjustable rate mortgages and I, I can tell you why I'm saying this. I'm saying this, I'm looking right now and anybody can go on nationaldebt.org and see that we are at 30 trillion plus dollars in national debt. Now, last year, the government paid about not quite $600 billion in interest at an interest rate at between zero and 0.5%. We are already approaching two and according to the Fed, they wanna to go to three. That's basically saying that's kind of like where treasuries are going to be. So with some, if you're generous, you could say that's six times as much. I don't even want to go there, but it probably means that we're going to look at something like a trillion dollars of interest on the debt. How long do you think we're going to be able to sustain that? Politically, I think that's total suicide. So yes, I understand that they want to catch inflation and do something. But when we look at this macroeconomic thing, that we call the economy, I don't think it's sustainable for very long. That's why I'm saying from today, 
two and a half, maybe three years. And then at the very latest, the Fed has to come back to something more reasonable, not for us, for investors and, 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 and homeowners and stuff, for being able as a government to, to serve our debt and not collapse the whole place. And because of that, you know, then things will be cash flowing a little better again. But in the meantime, if you say, okay, I get a interest only loan on my mortgage and don't pay any principal for three years, why not? Right. And that helps you with your cash flow and benefit from the from the higher rents that you can get. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alex Brayshaw. Join me as I celebrate the positive impact of business and what drives the people behind it. It's a chance to hear from business leaders, emerging sectors and industry influencers about their unfinished business in just 25 minutes. And I mean, I, that's, I mean, that's excellent insight. And, um, you know, I, I, I salute you for putting some predictions out there because I um, I know when I've made predictions in the past, I've often been wrong. But um, oh, I would every, be wrong. <laughs> but every um, every every few years, a new type of opportunity um, comes out. Oppor- the the way we would invest in 2010, when there um, you know was a different set of opportunities in the wake of the financial crisis, is not necessarily the strategy that works today. Um, okay. And by the time people perfect a strategy, um, write books, get them published, and get them out um, out to the world. The, the opportunity often has passed. So I think, um, you know, when you're working with your clients, um, there's a, a bit of agility out there and a bit of a willingness to have to, to change strategies as we go through. But the, the fundamentals seem to be the same. And that is you want to get into real estate. Real estate is fundamentally um, a good long-term investment um, subject to, it's not immune from the rest of the market, but in many ways it's... Um, it survives the rest of the market, um, and 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 that's you know that's the value I think you add to your clients. Um, you know, before yeah, we yeah, exactly, well, if I if I may comment on on that for a minute, one thing that I find interesting is a, a little bit of a vignette that a guy by the name of Michael Saylor recently said in a in an interview. He he was asked, you know, what what are good investments in your in your view, and he's for people who know the space know he's one of the most adamant uh, supporters of Bitcoin. But they said, well, you know, Bitcoin, one thing, but how about other things? And he basically made a strong case why value assets mm-hmm. are the place to be, which is where residential real estate falls. But what I wanted to, in, in to what you were sh- uh, describing, Rory, as a quick comment, if you pick any location if you like a place here where i live or a place in boston or a place like in this case michael saylor spoke about a nice house by the water in miami Mm -hmm. that house let's say was built in 1975 beautiful house and at the time it cost one hundred eighty thousand dollars. the thing that the house gives you and me and anybody out there the space to live enjoy ourselves by the water in Miami in the nice weather is a certain kind of of service, so to speak, if you want to look at that. And it used to cost you $180,000. Now it costs you probably $1.1 million. But the house is not different, Mm -hmm. right? And so what that really points towards is 
The reason it costs $1.1 million is not because the service that the house brings to any occupant or anybody who goes to it is different. It's just the money isn't worth as much anymore. And that's really the same thing that applies to all our investment properties, right? So if we have inflation, which actually means the value of the money that we're using to go buy a watermelon or stuff like that is decreasing rapidly at right now 8.6%. So if you buy a property and you say, okay, it's not in down in Miami by the beach, but it's somewhere in Cincinnati that performs well and, and yeah. gives the service to our tenants for $1,200, $1,500 a month. Well, if the money keeps losing its value, then obviously the price of this thing has to increase because it still provides the same service as before. And that's one of the big differences that people, I believe, hopefully can, can benefit from understanding is it's not that the price of the house or the value of the house increased in the sense of it is somehow giving us better living or better, more square footage or anything like that. It's the value of the money that we give for it is going down. And that is going to continue. And I don't know how inflation will look like next year and two years from now, but it's not going to be 2%. Well, I, th I think that a lot of the institutional investors are finding their way to real estate as well, which is causing even more of a of a of a tightening for people that are looking to buy their first homes because they're competing against larger corporations. You know, it's everyone sees inflation uh, at these high numbers; they're all looking for ways to park their money and watching it grow and beat inflation, or at least keep up with it. And you know, that's that's causing even more of a uh, of a bind because hey, those watermelons are going up in price. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, whenever, well, whenever when I go to the wholesale club, you know, like I think my basket of stuff is like thirty or forty bucks more <laughs> than it was just a few months ago. It's just kind of how it yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Well, the thing I I, I want to actually support a little bit because sometimes the institutional investors are basically put into like the the doo doo corner or something <laughs> like that. I'm always trying to to ask people think about what money are they using? They didn't just go to the money tree and pick a couple of bills and, and then say, well, let's see where we can invest it. Typically, it's money that comes in because of 401ks or of IRAs or of 539s or whatever other plans people are doing to try to accumulate um, wealth or accumulate money for a certain purpose, be retirement, college, whatever. So I always say, well, if you give this to an institutional investor, wouldn't you want them to look out for putting your money on your behalf somewhere where it performs well? And if you currently look and say, okay, well, in the past for 11 years, the place to go was the stock market. But, you know, it's like um, musical chairs. It mm -hmm. ends at some point, right? And so now they have to look and they, I think, saw the writing on the wall for a few years already that this is not going to continue forever. And now they're looking in places where can we put the money of our clients and have to have it perform well, right? I, I, I find oftentimes the description that we see in the media about certain things and what's happening in markets, extremely short change, and they never really put any reasoning in it. They just put the headline as, as horrible as possible to attract um, people's attention. But when you really look behind it and say, okay, you're putting, oh, I don't know, 500 bucks a month in your 401k, wouldn't you want your institutional investor to put it in a place that appreciates really well? I would say so, yeah. 
I mean, we could probably go on and on about uh, these <laughs> yeah. macroeconomic uh, conditions that are causing a lot of the microeconomic issues that people are having. And yeah. we appreciate all of your insights, Axel. I do want to get to the final questions that we have, and then you could tell everyone how they could find you, ask lots of great questions, work with you. I do also want to mention earlier on the episode, you said something about the forums and bigger pockets. And, you know, I also want to underscore that. I mean, I think the bigger pockets has allowed a lot of us, myself included, uh, to work toward uh, becoming the real estate investors that we never knew that we were, all because of the amazing information that's out there, the willingness for people like yourself to answer questions and to say, hey, if you have more questions, just reach out to me. I've said this many times in this podcast that, like, this is, you know, it's not a zero sum game. Like, you don't have to lose for me to win. Like we could both win together. Lots of people could win at this game. And I think people are very willing to give information out because there's so many different ways that people could invest in real estate. And, you know, I know Baker Pockets has been there for quite some time. I think my, I just looked at my profile. I think I opened it up seven years ago at this point. Yeah. I mean, right. you know, and starting to communicate with people, but, you know, seven years later, it is still a really important place. And and I always direct people there if they are just looking at me and I start talking about real estate and they don't know me as that, or they do know me as that and they don't know what I'm doing, you know, as an investor on the side of, you know, when I was you know working full time. And they're like, well, where are you learning all this stuff? And I just say, just start a bigger pockets. Like, and you go down this rabbit hole, and next thing you know, you know, they're as excited about it as you and I are. Yeah, I totally so, agree with that. And and the the reason I mentioned the forums is mainly because you can ask your specific question. You can describe your specific circumstance. And if if your audience is wondering, okay, so couldn't you put this in an online learning program, people charge people five grand and have them learn it themselves? My answer is, well, you can put some fundamental information out there and there are plenty of people who do that. But in my experience, and I've really worked with a lot of people and keep working with a lot of people, and I have not so far really seen one case that was even close to the next case, mm -hmm. right? Because of the age or the history or the savings or the horror stories or whatever it is. And so having a place in a community where you can say, here is my circumstance, who has any kind of advice? And if you like what you hear to say, well, okay, maybe this person is a little deeper than just this answer. And I want to, just like you said, Jason, I totally agree. That's the beauty of this thing. And that's, I think, what kept it growing and kept it so vibrant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we certainly appreciate all of your insights also. And, you know, the forums of bigger pockets is somewhere that I want to invest time in right after this podcast. Like it just kind of gets me thinking about it again, saying, I want to jump back in that. You know, sometimes you, you know, life gets in the way, but um it's it's such a wealth of information. And I know people that are listening to this podcast are probably bigger pockets fans as well. It's where a lot of us <laughs> right. uh, got our interest. Um, yeah. why don't we get into the final couple of questions that we ask okay. all of our guests just to get to know you a little bit better? And then we'll um allow you to let everyone know where they can get a hold of you and we'll put all this stuff in the show notes, uh, all the links to your website, social media profiles, everything. First of all, first question, if you can get on stage for a half an hour and talk about any subject in the world with zero preparation, what would that be? Yeah, I, what I would love to do in hopes of inspiring people to join me or help me is to point out that we have all the technology necessary to make our investment properties environmentally friendly. Right? We, can't, we know what pipes it takes to collect the water. We know what options there are to put 
solar panels on them. We know that we can put a battery pack in the garage and charge our electric car, even if we don't have it yet. It can be there and help run our house and on and on and on, right? There's so much amazing sustainability technology out there. And I would love to advocate for that if I get like a TED talk or a stage or stuff like that. Yeah, that's a, a great, um, great idea. We have not had anyone talk about sustainability to that to that extent, have we, Rory? No, not yet. I mean, I think it's for a lot of people, it's a secondary thought when it should really be at the forefront of our of what we're thinking. But um, you know, the people we've spoken to, it, however, we arrive at the conclusion, talk about it in terms of cost savings. But mm-hmm. um, I think adding it to our you know core mission, just sustainability. When we I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but when we just look around at our own neighborhoods and the way we've built and, you know, the way this country has been built over the past few decades, you can see some glaring inefficiencies and, um, you know, we can't solve that overnight, but if we put sustainability at the forefront of our investing, we can make a difference. Yeah, there's, there are triggers, right? Like, I mean, right now we see only one facet of it that are the gas prices and at the pump. But if you were living in Europe, for example, and you see gas prices, um, food prices, um, the literally natural gas for heating and all that kind of stuff is like doubled mm-hmm. just since the yeah. war started because there was such a huge dependency on supplies from Russia and Ukraine. And over there, they're now trying to scramble to find alternatives. Well, my message would be from that stage, like you said, Jason, let's not wait until we're in desperate times. Let's use the available technology and get our stuff done so that we don't ever have to say, well, can I actually buy food or can I pay my electrical bill because I have no solar panel on the roof? Right. Well, I will say, Rory, all the construction trucks that we see in our neighborhood right now for the builders, uh, it says build a green right there on the truck. So hopefully we've been working with some good sustainable builders here. Uh, right. That would make you proud, Axel. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> second question we have for you. Uh, tell us something that happened early on in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working today. Well, one, uh, there are a couple of things, but the one that I would want to point out is I learned very early on from school and then also into the military and maybe a little bit uh, because of the sins of my ancestors in, in Germany that people are good. And I adopted from that, you don't need to earn anything. You can, when you engage with me, assume that I'm assuming regardless where you come from, how you look, what color of your skin, what kind of habits or background or whatever, I assume you are good and you want the best for yourself and for other people, which means as long as you just barely or more than barely meet that expectations, we're already good from day one. You don't need to prove a hundred things before I say, okay, Rory, now I can finally trust you. That would never happen. And, and that was a very important lesson because throughout my career in all these different places, cultures and circumstances it has always served me well to look for the good and get confirmation the good is really there uh i kind of subscribe to the same mindset i mean like in the northeast we don't always trust everybody you know you kind of have to you have to earn the trust a little bit but i go into every conversation thinking like this person is a good person Mm -hmm. until otherwise proven Um, and the final question we have for you is tell us something that you're listening to or watching or reading these days. 
Yeah, I've just finished one. I'm about halfway through the other one, um, two books, and I'm actually become a pretty big fan of Audible. I'm listening more than I'm actually having physically the book. Um, the first one, and they are in that sequence. I'm not saying you have to read them in that sequence, but I would say it's probably helpful. The first is called the Bitcoin Standard, and the second one is called the Fiat Standard. And just for people who say, why, why would I want to read a bo about, book about Bitcoin? What I found so fascinating, I didn't know this until I read them, is that they're really in two volumes, basically, describing the history and the workings of money. And it's, you know, if you read how fiat money impacts our food supply, our technology supply, our science and stuff in a concise way, I was blown away. So... If somebody wants to learn a little bit about the history and the workings of money, I would definitely recommend those two. Do, do the books go into the gold standard also, like the fiat money book? Yep, yep. They yeah. basically start out with uh, seashells and and, uh, and little um, trinkets and stuff, and then they go to the Roman gold and silver coins, and why do coins have these little riv riv rivlets at the side? Do you guys know that? I don't. I do not. <laughs> Actually, when the emperors were trying to find ways to get some of the gold or silver that was originally put in the coins back, they came up with a scheme to shave off little pieces. And if you have enough <laughs> in circulation, you can basically make new coins without having to mine new silver or gold. Hmm. Right. It's like, it, it, it's like the package of cereal that was 18 ounces that's now 17 ounces. And yeah, you're paying exactly. basically yeah. a little bit more for that. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, and then they started adding nickel and started adding, adding bonds yeah. and stuff like that. So there is a, a long history of um, what was money, how was money used, how was it manipulated. And, and, and the shocking thing is it's basically about a 10,000-year history and the manipulation hasn't stopped. No. <laughs> Oh, uh, that sounds awareness, right? Like, I mean, sorry, uh, Jason, but one of the things why I'm recommending stuff like that is I have found for myself, if you raise your level of understanding and awareness, you're just playing in a totally different league, right? So, I mean, you hear stuff in the, in the financial news, news or even general news, CNN or whatever, and you have the awareness and how these things fit together. How does money work? What does the Fed mean when they say they need to increase interest rates to try to fight inflation? You know, why am I saying the house in Miami is still the same service, same square footage, nothing changed, but it's now a hundred times as expensive, right? So that's, those things are beautifully described in those two books. It definitely adds a different dimension to understanding the news that we see that uh, we don't think impacts us. And then when you talk to a mortgage broker and you realize it does impact you, you know, yeah. it, it kind of adds it. Uh, adds a different dimension to that understanding. Yeah, and you might ask yourself, okay, how am I going to carry my two hundred thousand dollars worth ten kilo gold bar around, right? And that's why th it's so there heavy. Is a play I mean, a yeah, I, I could barely lift it up right here. Yeah, actually. right, and that's yeah. where the, that's where the place for Bitcoin comes in, right? Like where they say, okay, imagine we're digitally, it wouldn't be so heavy. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to go count that two hundred grand or so. You know, uh, recount it today. Uh, that's my activity for the rest of the day. But um, tell tell everybody where uh, they can get a hold of you uh, if they'd like to learn more or, or work with you. I know idealwealthgrower.com is probably an easy way to get a hold of you, but you know, 
tell us what's what's the preferred manner yeah the, the best way i mean ideawetgoa.com gets you to the website but if you just go on google yahoo any of the search engine put in ideal wealth grower as a search term in three words one word whatever you will find us pretty much across across all the different social media sites and each one of those has a way to to get in touch and, and we will respond so website or any social media place under ideal wealth grower and you get us great and we'll link it up in the show notes, as I mentioned. Um, Rory, what a great financial education that we just had over this past period of time. Well, let's let's take this and let's run with it and, and just keep learning more and more. Um, well, that's, I have, that's our goal. I have my, my $200,000 gold bar right here. I can't really run with that. But um, <laughs> So, Rory, uh, where can people get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you? Uh, people can find me at my real estate brokerage, Next Home Titletown. That's nexthometitletown.com or at my law practice, Urban Village Legal urbanvillagelegal.com. Awesome. Axel, thank you so much for being part of the Real Estate Law Podcast. Uh, we were looking forward to this conversation and it certainly del- delivered. So, um, you know, we re- really appreciate your insights um, and we'll have to circle back with you uh, down the line uh, in different economic times, whether it's better or worse. We don't know where it's going. So we'd love to get your take on it in the future as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for having me. And uh, I see you at your time frame point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you would give us a quick rating uh, or leave a comment. Uh, You might be listening on YouTube or on Spotify or any of the places uh, where podcasts exist because we are in all of them. So uh, if you want to be a guest in the podcast, reach out to me directly. You can find me, Jason, at nexthometitletown.com. And that's it. It's been another great episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. So Axel, Rory, Thank you so much for all of your insights and for your time today. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures. And law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.